Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with the Clean BC Plan. Now, this is the BC government's climate change plan, the plan to drastically drive down carbon emissions in British Columbia. 40% reduction by 2030. Brand new poll reports out on this about the economic impact of this plan. Got Andrew Weaver standing by. He's one of the architects of this plan. Have a listen to Kevin Falcon here first on a recent show here, leader of the opposition. He says this would, this would devastate the economy. He would shut this plan down. Here's what he had to say to me. Have a listen. Not by 2030 can we achieve 40% reduction without ruining the economy. No question, we have to. We can't do that. I, I, I refuse to punish and destroy our economic foundation in British Columbia and hammer families uh, for the basis of maybe, maybe some infinitesimal reduction uh, in, mm. in emissions. Okay, so he says he would scrap these emission reduction targets. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Andrew Weaver, former leader of the BC Green Party. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming on today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Andrew, could you quickly remind the listeners about your history here with this plan? I mean, this was, you are a key part of this plan, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually uh, got into politics because I uh, felt I couldn't stand by and watch the legacy of leadership that uh, British Columbia was demonstrating when Gordon Campbell was our, our premier on uh the climate file. Um, and then Christy Clark came in and decided we were all going to get wealthy from uh, LNG industry that wasn't economically viable. And all I can say, as I told you, so on that one, led the Greasy Green Party from 2013 to 2020. We held balance of power from 2017 till 2020. And it was during that time that I worked very closely with government. And we we created what, what I would call uh, an economic Plan. Not a not a, a, a climate plan. I mean, it's a bit like in the U.S. Biden has a an absolutely superb climate plan, but it's actually called the Inflation Reduction Act um, because it really was uh, an economic plan. And that's the same with Clean BC. So, Mr. Well, Mr. Falcon, Falcon yeah. is is kind of muddling that up. Well, of course, it's not just Falcon saying this. We've got the major business organizations in the province sounding the alarm on this. you got the BC Business Council has done a study on the government's own numbers here, and they say, look, if we actually try to do this, drive these emissions down and so drastically in such a short time, you're going to devastate the economy. GDP would go down. Thousands of jobs would be lost. Do you not believe that? Complete and utter nonsense. Look, uh, let's go to the U.K., UK's emissions are 46% below 1990 levels. I mean, it, it's 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 these. This is the kind of nonsense that people put out when they really just want to continue uh, down the same path they've always been doing. It's actually a disincentive for innovation. The whole the whole philosophy behind Clean BC is British Columbia's economy is grounded in innovation. That is, we understand that we have strategic, uh, strategic uh, assets here in BC and strategic priorities here in BC that we should be taking advantage of. We're one of the most beautiful places in the world to live so we can attract and retain the best and brightest. We have access to balance boundless resources in the form of yeah. wood, minerals, water, uh, et cetera. And, and, there's, and, and our education system is second to none. But unfortunately... Okay, speaking, um, of, 
Speaking of the speaking of those Sorry, Biden. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew, speaking of those resources, the plan largely calls on, on a massive electrification of the economy here in B.C. We need clean electricity, clean power. Where are we supposed to get all this electricity right now? I mean, we've got the Site C dam right now, which, which you opposed. What are you saying now, well, that we should build a ton more well, uh, hydroelectric dams or something? No, no. I mean, this is this is sort of the, 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 the sad nature of political discourse in D.C. Uh, again, I'll go back to the time when Mr. Campbell was our premier. He recognized that innovation in the clean energy sector is something that could actually, A, give us enhanced energy security, B, allow us to work for, with towards economic re- reconciliation with indigenous peoples because many of these projects exist on traditional land distributed across uh, British Columbia. And C, again, it was a catalyst for innovation. BC used to have an absolutely vibrant clean energy sector. Uh, unfortunately, it all went, yeah. it, it sort of dissipated away because again, of Christy Clark's policies and because well, of Site C, which was, power that wasn't needed at the time and it was designed explicitly and 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 solely to subsidize lng but the right, lng industry with power but right now speaking to andrew weaver former leader of the bc green party right now in british columbia andrew we are net importers of electricity into the province right i mean that's according to this year that's according to statistics canada and a lot of that energy that we import isn't that dirty power that's being generated no, it's actually with not- uh, no, it's Go actually ahead. not. That's, that's another, another mistake that people continue to perpetuate. In fact, what British Columbia is doing right now is it's, it's using its hydro resources to help California stabilize its load. Uh, British Columbia buys exceedingly cheap, but prices sometimes even go negative, uh, peak California solar in the middle of the day because California produces too much solar. Uh, we don't yeah. import that dirty coal. What we do is stabilize that solar load by using that and then using our hydro to, you know, when it's not sunny in California, giving them some uh, power back. So this brings enormous revenue into BC uh, coffers through uh, the trading arm of BC Hydro, PowerX, uh, okay. which do arbitrage plays on, on energy exchange. So, so again, add- this has been going on for a long time. Let me go back to the economic impact, because I think this is the the biggest concern for people when they take a look at some of this analysis, take a look at some of these numbers that are coming out. And when you're talking about, which I believe, actually, because I I, I take your I take your point. So you think what you think you think you think the B.C. Business Council and these other big business organizations where they're lying to the public? No, I think they have vested interests, and what they do is they 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 put forward reports to under certain assumptions to give them results that uh, ad, uh, advance their case. Uh, look, um, who did anyone refer to the Innovation Commissioner's report um, by Dr. Alan Winter that talked about the economic opportunities within Bleed BC? No. It's just self-serving uh, 11 and a half, 11 hour, 59 minute reports come out as everyone's trying to pile in to take advantage of, of kind of cynic but, cynicism out there for their own personal gains. And I, I but think this, this, the, uh, we shouldn't be doing that in society. We should be working to for the collective, not just for our individual vested interests. Well, this analysis was based on the government's own numbers, the government's own modeling. And when you take a look at a 40% reduction in emissions between now and, and, and 2030, like when you take a look at big industrial sectors, oil and gas, transportation, heavy industry, construction, Andrew, how could it not be drastically impacted by such a dramatic cut in emissions? 
Well, look, my because defies, my defies that, logic. Well, it does. It actually doesn't, Mike, because it only defies logic if you decide you don't want to do anything. What what the whole purpose of uh, uh, the Clean BC was to recognize that our future prosperity does not lie in doing more of the same with the way we used to do it, but lies by recognizing that innovation is the is going to be the driver for it. This is one of the reasons why we have one of the most vibrant tech sectors in in North America here in BC because of the recognition that we can attract and retain the best and brightest because of the quality of life we can we can we can give people i mean there we the things will change of course you know the forest industry's uh, practices are changing as we speak but change is a catalyst for innovation as opposed to something we should fear and okay. uh, and unfortunately status quo when you're trying to maintain the status quo fear yeah. is a very successful tool to try to get people not wanting to change. 30 seconds left here, Andrew. Would your message therefore be to Premier David Eby, stick to your guns, hold your ground, do not back away from these emission targets? Well, yeah, that would be my message. And in fact, okay. BC's economy is leading the country. It's leading the mm. country precisely because we've shown leadership in recognizing that every environmental challenge can be seen through the lens of the opportunity it creates for innovation and prosperity. And that's the direction the government's taking, not this kind okay. of you know, 19th century retrograde, let's try to scare people with, with rhetoric approach. And, and so I, I'm disappointed in Kevin Falcon. Uh, I, I think uh, he missed an opportunity and he's offered nothing of substance. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Let's talk about highway and road safety in British Columbia. We just went through a deadly weekend. There are several fatal car crashes in the province on the weekend. Do we need a massive expansion of traffic enforcement cameras? So I'm talking red light cameras, speed cameras, photo radar and not just at dangerous intersections. We have 140 of those right now, but there are calls to massively increase that network of cameras. So put them everywhere. Put them in school zones, highways, crosswalks. Put them in city streets with high traffic volumes. Would that get people to slow down and drive more safely? Got Derek Lure standing by to discuss. Think about this now, too. Should we reduce the speed limits? Also calls for that as well. Have a listen to Teal Phelps Bondaroff here. He is a Saanich City Councilor on a recent show. And here he is making the case for traffic cameras. Traffic cameras are fantastic. They're a cost-effective way of increasing compliance and ensuring that we actually have monitoring on really important areas. I'm not saying we're going to get rid of roadside stops, but when it comes yeah. to things like speeding through playground zones, and high-risk intersections, we want the ability to deploy cameras to increase compliance and ultimately make our roads safer. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Derek Lures. Derek is a traffic management advocate. He's a researcher at SenseBC, which lobbies for smart laws, better drivers, and safer roads. Derek, thanks for coming on again. Hey, good morning, Mike. Long time no speak. And uh, let me first say congratulations on the great fundraising you guys did yesterday. That sounded like a remarkable turnout. 
Yeah, that was an awesome day. Thank you for mentioning that. It was an awesome day yesterday for the CKNW Kids Fund, and I was very happy to be part of it. And Man, we shattered the record again yesterday with the amount of money raised for, for kids in B.C. So that's awesome. Thanks to all the listeners yeah. here who uh, participated yeah. in that yesterday. Okay, Derek, let's talk traffic cameras here. Now, there are calls here to massively expand these cameras. That city councilor you just heard from there, he is saying, like, let us handle this. Let municipalities decide where to put these cameras. Cameras, we know best. What do you think? Well, I've never met a politician that didn't like uh, a new source of revenue, so that doesn't surprise me. Municipalities are uh, all hard up for cash, has been in the news. But I, w- I want to go back to what you said there that there's these calls for change. I don't know if that's an uh, accurate description. Uh, as I understand it, this uh, interview is being preempted by a poll that was conducted by Mario Canseco and his firm, uh, Insearch, or Insight Research. Um, I don't know that a poll means that there's been a call for changes, but it's definitely been good for his company to get the media attention about his company and the speed issue. So, I mean, I'm here to, I mean, we can talk about his poll and we can talk about uh, what differences or if any differences these measures might take. Uh, I found it interesting listening to that Senate's counselor uh, talking about the the high risk intersections and increasing compliance and playgrounds and high risk zones. You know, I would challenge that counselor to say, how do you how do you ha- justify that? How do you how do you show that there's an increased compliance? Because anywhere where there is automated speed enforcement, ticketing never goes down. So he was talking about high risk areas like a play playground or high risk areas. Well, if they are high risk, as someone who also appreciates public safety as a background as a firefighter and public service, I want to see that action taken immediately if there's someone blowing through this the speed uh, playgrounds let's yeah. pull them over right now and find out what's going on not okay, have well, them hit somebody or kill someone you know 100 meters down the road because no action was taken and if they get a ticket 15 days later in the mail that's not going to stop anything okay well let's have a, another listen to him and what he had to say here and the calls for the, the these reforms derek are, are coming from municipal governments they're coming from uh, mayors some mayors and councillors city councillors there's been an efforts to get the the union of bc municipalities behind this effort to expand these camera networks and allow municipalities to operate them so that's where that's coming from but let me play another clip here for you from that city councillor here so teal phelps bonderoff now here he makes the case now when he was on here before he said that there have been studies in other jurisdictions that show that these cameras are effective. And when drivers know that they're being watched by these cameras and potentially going to be ticketed for breaking the law, they do change their behavior. That's what, that's what he argues. So here's what he has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. This was a meta-analysis of 35 studies, and they found that the average speed in the vicinity of traffic cameras goes down 15%. Collisions went down between 14 and 25 percent. Fatalities and serious injuries went down between 11 and 44 percent. We have traffic laws, but they only work if they're followed. And they're often only followed if there's effective monitoring and enforcement. Okay, does that not make some sense that if a driver knows that there are cameras watching you, and watching you speeding, watching you blow through a red light, that you're not going to do that if you know you're going to get caught? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what meta studies he's referring to. I read a study um, in BMC uh, in preparation for this interview out of Toronto in 2020, citing their 30 kilometer an hour uh, speed limits because they're one of the Vision Zero champion cities. And they found no uh, significant difference, statistical difference between the cha- roads that were changed and the roads that were at 40 kilometers an hour. So I, I can't speak to what he's referring to. Um, 
as far as drivers' behaviors going through, uh, if they're knowing they're being monitored, I that might be an initial reaction. Uh, but I think everyone starts to get comfortable at some point. Um, but if everyone is comfortable, uh, which I disagree with the survey results, I don't think most people want to be watched 24/7 by cameras and the state. Mm. Um, but I, I think there's an ideology that sounds good. We want to be safe and we want to catch people. And I'm in favor of catching the scoff laws, the intoxicated drivers, the prohibited drivers. Um, but this isn't going to solve that. And, and Mario's poll, you know, you know, polls, polls are very subjective. You know, even in 2013, Mario's, when he was working for Angus Reid, they got it wrong when they called the 2013 election in favor of uh, MDP majority. They got it yeah. wrong then. His, yeah. his, you know, Castanet did a poll on the same question based on his uh, news release. They had 12,000 respondents, and that survey result was a 48-48 split. So, mm. I mean, is his poll accurate? I don't know. I emailed Mario to ask him the source of his poll. Where did he place it? What was the demographics? Uh, I did that at 7.30 yesterday morning. I have yet to get back for, hear back from him. Uh, these okay. things are very important. So to start mm. putting a press release out there saying that two-thirds of British Columbians favor more speed enforcement, pretty misleading. You know, he uses languages in the survey of, what the options of definitely very good and strongly with uh, regards to his questions for those definitely the very good and the strongly they were less than a third in favor the ones that came after that were moderately moderately in favor might be in favor somewhat agree so that those are people that don't aren't 100 percent bought in and they don't have all the facts okay so i actually okay. think it's very misleading Let's let's listen to a little bit of him here. Speaking of Derek Lewis, uh, Lures, Sense BC, should we install more traffic cameras? Should we lower speed limits? Now, this is another one we discussed on the show yesterday, and this was also part of this poll. There is an effort to lower speed limits, especially on residential side streets in urban centers, lower them to 30 kilometers an hour. Uh, Mario Canseco, the pollster, we ha he was on the show yesterday, and he said, look, there is support for lowering speed limits. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. 69% tell us they think it's a good idea when we tell them, would you be okay with reducing the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour on all residential streets in your own municipality while keeping the speed limit on arterial and collector roads at 50? 61% say yes. It's down five points from 2022. But it's still three out of five British Colombians who say, we think this is a good idea. Okay, so he says this poll indicates that, you know, a pretty significant majority of people like this idea, lowering speed limits 30 kilometers an hour on residential side streets. Derek, your thoughts? Yeah, again, I go back to what I said earlier about his polling. There was a yeah. percentage that strongly agreed. That was somewhere around 24%, I believe, just under a third. Uh, and then somewhat agree was below that at like 20%. So again, it's not all the facts. Um, the 30 kilometer, you know, I, I read his, he did an op-ed for BIV uh, News. I don't know what that organization is, but it, they are an online news organization. Business in Vancouver. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not on the mainland there, you big city folks. But uh, yeah. so he did an op-ed for that. And he leads his op-ed starting with talking about three fatal crashes and a rash of crashes, kind of like you did with opening the show today. Now, I looked into those crashes because they were linked in his article, and one of them was a T-bone. One of them happened mid-block at midnight, and the other one happened on 15th Avenue. Uh, one was on Main Street, and the other one uh, was also on a Main Street, not Main Street, but a Main Street. Uh, and police said no speed or impairment was suspected. So, mm. again, what are the causes of these crashes? You know, Main Street. Main Street's not a side street. 
it's not a 30 kilometer an hour. I was just in Vancouver this past weekend. I don't think anyone's going to be advocating for a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit on Main Street. So mm. what are these crashes really happening? And, and you and I had a conversation, I think it was a couple of years ago now, the last time we talked. Um, we talked about this. When you're on a side street, and in Mario's poll, he, uh, he asked this question, how often do you perceive cars going 50 kilometers an hour or greater on your residential streets? The perception when you're a pedestrian on the side of the road and a vehicle is going by, a two-ton vehicle is going by, that it's driving much faster than you think it should be is always going to be greater. It's just, it's just the way physics works. When you're a human and you're seeing this two-ton metal object going on the road, it always looks like it's going faster. But if you put most of those people behind the car and drive that street, mm. they're, and they're going to be driving the speed limit. And someone else is going to say they're driving too fast. So it's not going to, it's not going to change anything. Um, I, I do want to mention, though, that this whole uh, safe systems approach and the push for the 30-kilometer speed limits was all based on a study that came out that talked about impact speeds and the survivability of impact speeds. And right. I wanted to draw your attention to that key word, impact. Impact speeds, not driving speeds, impact speeds. So if you have a car that's traveling at 60 kilometers an hour, recognizes a hazard that's about 40 meters out, takes about one and a half seconds to react on average, hits the brakes. When that person hits that object, if that object stays static, doesn't move, and there's no evasive actions taken, the impact speed would occur at 30 kilometers an hour, which is the mm. impact speed that they're targeting where you have only a 10% fatality rate. If a car is traveling at 50 kilometers an hour under those very same conditions, that impact speed would be 24 kilometers an hour. So I believe that there's actually been quite a misunderstanding of the whole reason to get to this 30K. Um, and and okay. it's, it's wrong. Okay. Some in really interesting context there that you just outlined. Let me ask you this. Bottom line it here for me. Do you think the speed limits in British Columbia overall are... Too low, too high, just about right. Would you change anything, speed limits in general? Uh, well, I'm not a traffic engineer, so I don't get to say whether they are right or wrong. But I yeah. do believe that the understanding is that the traffic speed limit should be set to the 85, 85th percentile of drivers. In BC, that is generally not the case. Uh, so I do think there's lots of room for change in that to adjust the speed limits. Most drivers on the road will drive at a reasonable, safe speed for the conditions that they're under. The, the majority, of course, not so, everybody. So, you, do you mean do you mean that traffic the traffic the posted speed limits are typically too low? Yeah, I, I can give you an example hmm. where I live on Highway 14 and uh, out in the west shore of the island. Yeah. There is a permanent st speed counter on a four-lane section of highway that's been there for almost 20 years. That that is publicly accessible on the on the line with the BC government. The 85th percentile of traffic on that section of road is 103 kilometers an hour. That's day in and day out, 15,000 cars a day, 365 days a year. The posted speed limit on that road is 80 kilometers an hour. And then it transitions to a 60 kilometer an hour when it goes down to two lanes. Law okay. enforcement regularly yeah. sits at that transition zone. They have oh. not adjusted the speed limit. So you got people that are actually doing on average 103 transitioning to a 60 and they're getting picked off like flies so in that okay. case no i don't think the road speed them is set to the reasonable majority because there's not a lot of accidents there and people are traveling that speed derek it's always very fascinating to speak to you thank you for coming on today i appreciate it
Thanks. Thanks. And uh, look forward to the next one. Let's not make it a couple years. Let's talk about the stresses and strains on our healthcare system, the growing demand. We have an aging population here that has created an increased demand for all kinds of healthcare services, very notably care for cancer. So we're talking cancer screening, biopsies, radiation, chemo, lots of people waiting, some people taking some extreme measures to get treatment. Got Kevin Falcon standing by to discuss the situation here. Have a listen to this here now. This is Alison Duclazeau, and she is a Victoria cancer patient. She went to the United States for treatment. She was waiting here, not getting the care she thought she needed. She spent $200,000 on cancer care in the United States. Let's have a listen to her here. Universal healthcare really doesn't exist. My experience is it's do-it-yourself healthcare and GoFundMe healthcare. Yeah, she says the system now is do-it-yourself healthcare, GoFundMe healthcare. She actually, her family raised a lot of the money there for her treatment there on GoFundMe. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. That is the leader, leader of the opposition in the BC legislature. Kevin, thanks for coming on again today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this woman's story here? Uh, that she went to decided to go to the United States, spent two hundred grand here on cancer treatment. I've talked to other people who have done similar. Oh, I like I hear these stories on a regular basis, Mike, and it's awful. Uh, and sadly, she's right. I mean, what is the point of free universal health care if you can't actually get the care you need, and it's going to cost you your life? What she didn't include was the fact that they actually said to her, "Get your affairs in order. There's nothing more we can do here." And then she you know, went and searched out and found a place down in the U.S., raised the money, went down there, and now she's she's doing extremely well. Um, so we've got a major problem, and this is, it's frustrating, Mike. You know, I always go on about how we have to hold governments accountable for results, not for what they promise. This is another example where we've gone from having one of the best cancer care systems in North America to now one of the worst in this country. And, and I just think we have to, government's got to be held accountable for these results. Okay, but what what would you do? Would you just vastly sp- increase spending on health care? Because you've also talked oh, about God. balancing the budget and cutting spending. Yeah, go ahead. You know, well, well, this is the thing. It's not about how much money you spend. It's how you're spending it. So, for example, uh, in question period yesterday, Adrian Dick says, yes, well, we introduced a 10-year cancer plan. And I said to him, yeah. you're in year seven of your government. It's nice that you've introduced a 10-year plan, but the problem is it lacks any clear targets. There's no clear deliverables. There's no timelines, measurements. There's nothing that they don't know what a business plan is. A business plan is something that you set out clear timelines and accountabilities so they're built in, so that you know whether you're making progress or not. None of their plans have those kind of measurables. And so without that, we're not going to get improved results. And we see that with you know their plan to send people down to Bellingham to get radiation treatment. Now, the yeah. last time that happened in this province was the last time the NDP were in power in the 1990s. I hope people are seeing that there's a common theme here. They take a good working healthcare system, they overly bureaucratize it, then we start getting worse and worse results, and then they're forced to have to go send patients down to the United States to get basic cancer care. And it's very, very frustrating. Yeah, okay, I want to dig, I want to uh, talk to you a little deep, more deeply on, on that issue about sending cancer patients to Washington State for treatment, because I remember when the government signed these contracts here with those hospitals down there, they were talking about 
maybe 50 patients a week going down there for radiation therapy, and it's turned out to be around around 12 a week. But let me play a clip here for you from the health minister. He's asked about the situation here, especially around cancer care in British Columbia. You'll hear him talk about the cancer plan here, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Adrian Dick speaking yesterday. We've got to make improvements. BC is seeing a very large increase in population, in an aging population. And that's why we're responding with a 10-year cancer plan. When you hear the word cancer, you want to get treated? Yeah, when you hear the word cancer, you want to get treated. Yeah, no kidding. And he, he said that there will be, there is a 10-year can, cancer plan in place, as you already touched on. And he also talked about the aging population driving demand for care. So what should be done done differently here in this plan like you're saying that there just should be measurable targets that would make a difference well, well the thing is um it, it, this is my frustration and I, god knows i think they try their hardest they do their best but none of them come from a background to understand a business background to know that if you put together a business plan but it has no accountabilities or measurables and there's nothing there that gives clear timelines you're never going to know whether you're meeting your objectives and, and that's my frustration that we continually see here. Um, he talks about how we've got an aging population. Well, if it took him seven years to figure out that we've got an aging population in British Columbia and that our population's growing, that's a source of concern in itself. None of this stuff should be a shock to anybody. What, what we need to have is the proper leadership that creates clear timelines and accountabilities for authority of getting things done, holding people accountable for those results, and, and making sure that we you know get things done. So, for example, he's talking about hiring more oncologists well well that's all good for sure we need those but you know again during the year seven of their government we've been we, we've called for them to increase the the doctor training spaces like we did when we the first year we were elected mike you might remember this the ndp hadn't increased the training spaces not by one position in the entire 10 years they were in government in the 90s and we more than doubled it to 288 and what we've said is that's got to go up to 400 we need to get those international mm -hmm. medical graduates especially the ones that have already passed their Medical Council of Canada qualifying exams, get them in here and get them helping out in our crisis. If you're in the middle of a healthcare crisis, which we are, you have to treat it like a crisis. And that means you don't just keep doing things the way you've always done them for the past 100 years. You have to start doing things differently. Speaking to BC United leader Kevin Falcon, so let's talk a little bit about this plan to send BC cancer patients south of the border to Washington State for treatment there. And when the government announced this, I thought, okay, boy, people will be lining up to get this care. Uh, the government's going to put you up in a hotel, pay for your meals. You'll be able to get your radiation therapy. Okay, you've got to travel to Bellingham, but I thought a lot of people would do that. Let's. Uh, it turns out if not as many people as we, they thought are doing this now. Let's have a listen to Adrian Dix here. Here he is making that announcement here, sending cancer patients to Washington State. Let's listen. Because with cancer and radiation treatment, we are not prepared to have people wait. That's why this, um, as, a, as we searched out this option, an opportunity, saw that it was available, we did not hesitate to offer this and are not hesitating to offer this to British Columbians. Okay, so it was up to 50 patients a week to get treatment in the United States from BC for cancer. How many patients a week have actually been doing that, Kevin Falcon? Uh, about 12. So you're talking about less than 25% of uh, the patients uh, that they said would be going down there to get treatment are actually getting it. And uh, so, you know, apparently they're having difficulty even organizing, you know, 
getting people to get basic radiation treatment. But look, and the thing is, these people need to get that treatment. I, I suspect that a lot of people would rather be at home getting that treatment. And this is what I find so frustrating is that the very fact that our system has fallen to such a point where we're having to ship outsource patients effectively down to the U.S. healthcare system is shocking in itself. And I just want to remind that the listeners out there, the last time this happened was the last time the NDP were in power. It, that This is literally a self-introduced problem that they make for themselves. And it's because of mismanagement of the system. I think people really need to get their heads around this. We didn't have a perfect system back when I was healthcare, or sorry, health minister back in 2009, 2010. But I can tell you we had the best cancer uh, uh, wait times and the best outcomes in North America. Now we're at the worst. Well, well, here's where I'm confused, though. Like, at first they were saying, well, there could be 50 patients a week going down to Bellingham for radiation therapy. Turns out it's only 12 a week. Is that, maybe that's a good thing, isn't it? Like, if that means that if people are, maybe they're getting the care they need here or they're choosing not to go down there. Like, I would think if I was desperate for radiation therapy for my cancer, I'd be on the first... You know, I'd be going down to Bellingham tomorrow if I, if that's the only pl- time I could get it. Why do you think so few people are doing that? Well, because think about it this way, uh, especially if you've got uh, young kids at home, which, you know, many of these uh, patients do. They've got families. That's yeah. probably why not a single person from Interior Health has taken advantage of this program. That's probably why there's only been 14 out of Northern Health. It's a long way to yeah. travel just to get down to the border so that you can then travel another few hours to get down to Bellingham. So, you know, this this isn't, you know, the the bottom line is this, though. We shouldn't have to be sending people down to the United States to get basic health care. We shouldn't have to be sending, you know, our hip and knee patients into private clinics to get the treatment. This is the same government that's always saying how terrible the private health care system is. Well, they're the ones that are having to send patients to that evil private care system to get the the service they need. For God's sakes, we've just got to get back to a situation where we have far less bureaucracy. As I've said before, I used to say there were 64 vice presidents earning over a quarter million a year. Now there's 70. It's actually gotten worse wow. since we raised this last year. So I just, I find the whole thing frustrating because I, I think the patients are losing out because we're not focused on patients. We're focused on growing the bureaucracy, growing the administrative, hiring more communicators uh, and communication yeah. staff and not frankly getting enough frontline staff. Okay, last question for you. While I have you here, let me ask you a political question, because every time I look at the opinion polls here now, I see you guys duking it out with this upstart B.C. conservative party, and there have been a lot of questions about whether the name change was the right thing to do, changing the name of the party from B.C. Liberals to B.C. United, and there have been some indications that your party is going to launch an aggressive new uh, branding uh, campaign or an advertising campaign to let people know what BC United is. Is that, like I've heard some of your ads here on the station recently, is there a big ad campaign coming for BC United? What's going on there? Well, no, nothing more than the fact that, look, we're 11 months out from an election. Um, yeah. 11 months is a lifetime in politics, as you can imagine. I just want to remind uh, you and your listeners that uh, when ABC Party in Vancouver, a year out from their election, nobody knew who ABC was. Uh, frankly, they probably didn't have a very good idea until a couple of months before the election. So this this is not unusual. Um, the other thing you need to know is the BC Conservative support. If you go out in the street and ask people who the leader of the BC Conservatives are, you'll either get, I have no idea, or they'll say it's Pierre Polyev. 
Uh, most of that support is just confusion support. It's just people that are thinking about the federal conservatives, which is understandable. And so, look, um, we, we will, I guarantee you this, by the time the next election rolls around, people will know exactly who BC United is. They'll know exactly what we stand for. They'll see that we've got outstanding candidates that we carefully vet that are going to make a great contribution and that we'll be ready to govern on day one. And I, frankly, there's, I, I don't think there's any scenario in which John Rustad would be uh, remotely ready to uh, step into the position of Premier. Thank you very much for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.